we want to continue to look in the book of Jude. Uh, we started out, I think, by giving you just a little bit of synopsis on a little cartoon type video that kind of gave you, a, a, an in, not an in-depth, but just a synopsis of what it was about. And then we gave a brief introduction. Then the second week, uh, we talked about Second Peter in particular and the book of Jude, because Second Peter and Jude are very analogous in thought processes. And then uh, what I want to do tonight is give another brief overview. That's kind of like, if you will, it's kind of like an onion. You peel an onion back, you get the top layer, and then you go to the second layer, you still get some of the top layer, and then you finally get down to the third layer, you get some of the second layer, and finally you get to the core of what's going on. So I hope you bear with me. There will be some repetition tonight, but I think one of the greatest ways to learn is through repetition. I remember when uh, my mother used to drill me in the multiplication tables when I was a child. She'd be ironing and fire off multiplication tables. I've done that, Mom. We're going to do it again. And you know what? I still remember my multiplication tables because it continued to come again and again and again. So there might be a little bit of, of rep repetition, <clears throat> but I hope... <clears throat> I hope that it will uh, make sense as we go along. Now we said in the beginning, the book of Jude is ultimately referred to as a difficult and a neglected book in the New Testament. Uh, it's a very neglected book, and sometimes the theology of it uh, can be very difficult to understand. Therefore, a lot of people just neglect the reading of the book within its entirety. But even though it's a neglected book, as I said, Second Peter and the book of Jude are very analogous. It seemed like they had the same background in mind uh, when they Jew was writing his book, and Second Peter was writing uh, his book as well. We've said to you before that James, uh, Jude was the brother of James. Uh, James was the pastor at the church in Jerusalem, and yet they were half-brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, neither Jude nor James uh, believed in Jesus as personal Savior. I've often wondered what would it have been like uh, to have been James and Jude and been raised in the same home as Jesus. What would it have been like to have seen Jesus teach and perform miracles and James and Jude and other family members standing in the background going, I don't understand this guy. We were raised with him. He's always been a little weird. He's always been a little out there as far as we're concerned. And yet you find that I think many times perhaps he was more of, an, they, Christ was probably more of an embarrassment to the family uh, than anything else. On one occasion, the brothers came to see him, the sisters came to see him, and Jesus said, who are my brothers and sisters? Not, not those guys, uh, the ones here that you believe in me. But it took the resurrection of Jesus Christ to take his own flesh and blood, had brothers, to believe that indeed he was the Messiah. I'm going to tell you, religion won't do a thing for us. But we get a hold of the cross, we get a hold of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it'll change our life, it'll change the life of the entire world as well. We know that James and Jude were seen, uh, they were part of the 500 that saw Jesus uh, raised from the grave. Uh, the Apostle Paul referred to James uh, as being born again. And we find Jude and James in the upper room awaiting the baptism in the Holy Spirit. When you read about Judah, if you or read about uh, Judas in the, in, the, in the book of Acts, uh, there in Acts chapter 1, uh, so forth, 1 uh, through 13, uh, Judas is the brother of James, which indeed is Jude. Now, to my knowledge, the book of Jude is the only book in the New Testament that dedicates itself entirely to the subject of apostasy. Apostasy which was going to come, false teachers that were going to come upon the church before the coming of the Lord. Now, it's like Jude brings all of the apostasy of the Old Testament and brings it to a climax. 
He goes back to the Garden of Gethsemane. He talks about angels that sinned. He talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. And he brought it up into the New Testament times as well. He brings the apostasy to a climax. Even the people of Israel he referred to and brought it up to the present day. As mentioned previously, uh, Jude is very analogous to 2 Peter, but more like the second chapter of 2 Peter as well. Uh, for it said in 2 Peter 2, 1, but there will be false prophets also among the people, even as there are false teachers among you who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. On the other hand, Peter said false prophets and teachers are coming. Jude says they're already in the church. Jude is a fulfillment of Peter's prophecies uh, in many respects. Now, even though the book of Jude is a small book, uh, it consists basically of, of 23 verses of Scripture, it's a powerful book. It's as up to date as this morning's newspaper uh, if you elect to read one. But the proof of the matter is, in modern day Christianity, we pretty much ignore uh, this book. But if you and I have an open mind and an open heart, we see that in the book of Jude contains a powerful, powerful uh, message uh, with, about warning, about rebuke, about resolve, but it's also a book of hope. I am grateful that Jude, when he penned these words, he just wasn't talking about apostasy and about the, the wrath that's coming upon rebellion and the wrath coming upon the unbelief. He also gave a ray of hope for those that are born again children of God that in the final analysis, God's got you back. God has your heart. God has you covered. And even though there's going to be a great judgment upon all ungodliness and upon sin, there's a homecoming uh, for those that love the Lord and follow. Aren't you grateful tonight that this old world's not all that there is to it? Aren't you grateful there is this place really called heaven? And the older we get, the more we seem to want to go there. And the more difficult times are, the more heaven seems to be. Sweeter and sweeter does the sound of heaven uh, to those of us that love the Lord. So the words written in the book of Jude are like a trumpet call uh, to the faith. James Moffat, a Scottish theologian, calls Jude a fiery cross to rouse the churches. A fiery cross to rouse uh, the churches. Now, let's talk about a few things. First of all, what was the threat that was coming against the church that Jude was talking about? I remind you is the intent of Jude to write a letter regarding the faith that all Christians shared. He wanted to talk about a common salvation. I don't know this. I don't know the mind of Jude, but I have a feeling in reading it. It's almost like Jude was saying, you know, I kind of didn't have a lot to do with my brother Jesus when he was, I lived with him there and we grew up together and all that. And while he was ministering, it, eh, not too much, but man, when he rose from the grave, and my life's been changed, I want to talk about that kind of a faith, a transforming faith that changed my life, changed James's life, and changed the life of everybody. That's what he wanted to write about, something like that. But he had to change gears because he began to see heresy creeping into the church. And rather than talk about a common salvation, he now had to talk about uh, something else. He says in verse 3, Beloved, uh, when I gave all diligence to write unto you all of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now again, the idea had to be laid aside about a common salvation and talk about the heretics that were coming into the church. The false teachers were a threat to the church. Do we understand that? 
false teachers are a threat to the church. Always have been, always will be, and they are today. Just as the false prophets uh, were terrible for the nation of Israel, false teachers are terrible for the church today. Basically, Jude was saying, rather than write a letter to you expounding on the faith, I want to write a letter to you defending the faith. You see, if we're not careful, we'll embrace anything and everything. And here's the danger that I see in American Christianity today, one of many. We tend to follow personalities. We tend to follow signs and wonders. We tend to want to follow miracles and those type things. And sometimes, not always, and don't misunderstand me, Satan can do more to deceive us as an angel of light than he ever will as a roaring lion. If somebody brings false doctrine and crams it down your throat, you can usually choke on it and you can see it. But if you've got an angel of light, someone that's charismatic, someone that's a brilliant person, someone that's personable, someone that's likable, someone that just can, I mean, just just ooze out with all all kinds of of niceties, we listen to them. And sometimes we follow the cult cult of personality more than we follow what's coming out out of their mouths. And I've seen more deception come. Let me give you a case of one. I may have shared this years ago in in, an illustration. But I I had a dear friend of mine. He pastored a church there in Virginia. He was the only man that I knew at that time in our particular district in the mountains that had a a, a doctorate degree. And because he had his doctorate degree, people flocked around him like stink on a skunk. They thought he was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And no matter what he said, it was the gospel. Well, one day there were a bunch of us on a van. We were heading to Indianapolis for a a seminar up there. And I was driving and they were talking about a subject in the Bible that I had just recently studied for weeks. And the guy, uh, we we was talking about it. And and, and I gave the Greek language and what it said and what it meant. He said, that's not what that means. And I went, but this is what the Bible said. Oh, no, no. And every preacher on that van followed what he said and not what I said, quoting the Word of God. Now, not that I'm somebody, but the Word of God better be something. And if you're quoting the Word of God and don't believe it, and you're listening to somebody's opinion about the Word of God and believe that, to me that's dangerous. And that's what I'm saying. People followed him because he had a doctrine. May I just say this, for every doctoral degree, there's an equal and opposite doctrine, just depending on what books you read and what papers you wrote. For every PhD in this world, there is an equal and an opposite PhD. It depends upon where you study from. It all boils down, friend, to what does thus saith the Word of God. Don't believe what Henry says or Dr. Joe Dobelli or or Dr. Pepper either. Believe what the Word of God says. Because we're going to be judged by this book. Not by the personalities that talk about this book. But this book. So basically, G was saying, rather than write a letter to expound the Christian faith, I'm going to write a letter that will defend the Christian faith. Certain men had crept into the church. They were engaged in turning the grace of God into an excuse for open immortality or immorality and were denying the truth about Jesus Christ as being the Son of God. These men were immoral in their life and they were heretics in their belief. Immoral in their life and heretic in belief. Now, another thing. I've seen this happen too many times. I have known preachers that have allowed evangelists to come to their church that they knew they were living in blatant sin. They knew that they were fornicating. They knew that they were uh, practicing homosexuals. They knew they were abusing drugs. But because God used them, they said, go at it. 
Is there a danger in that? And I've heard preachers say, well, I thought God excused it because he used them. Friend, God can use people he can't work in. He can work through instruments he can't work in. God's word is going to be confirmed no matter who speaks it. But I think sometimes the word needs to come out of clean vessels. Again, people deceived. What are the warnings? Because the false teachers had invaded the church, Jude brings forth his warnings to the church. He reminded them of the fate of Israelites. He basically said, I want you to remember Israel. God called the nation of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt, put them across the Red Sea miraculously, fed them in the wilderness, and got ready to take them to the promised land. Thirteen days is all it took, but because they rebelled. Because they went into unbelief. Because they came and had a test and they turned the test into a temptation against God. And because of that, they met the judgment of God and they all died in the wilderness with the exception of those 18 years of age and younger. Remember, he said, remember, they never entered the promised land because of unbelief. Verse 5. The reference again is in Numbers 13, uh, 26 through 14, 29. A man can receive the grace of God. A lady can receive the grace of God. And we might still lose our salvation if we are disobedient and we drift away from the word of God and the God who gave us that word. Jude also refers to the angels who were in heaven surrounded by the glory of God but kept not their first estate, came to earth, and did something so horrific that they're not now reserved and never left in change, waiting the judgment of God. In essence, Jews was telling them, anybody that rebels against God, don't care who you are, you're going to face the judgment of God. If you go through unbelief, as Israelite did, you're going to face the judgment of God. If you go through rebellion like a certain sect of the angels did, you're going to face the judgment of God. The next time we get together, we're going to go deeper into these subjects. We're just giving you the first layer of the core of the onion. In essence, you said, anyone who rebels against God must understand they're facing the judgment of the Almighty God. Then the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah had given themselves over to lust, over to immorality, unnatural sins of homosexuality and bestiality. Can you imagine... Men and women having sex relationship with animals and thinking it's okay. Homosexuality thinking that it's okay. Swift destruction came upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah as a result that they found themselves in that lust and all that. And, and fire and brimstone came down upon them. In each instance mentioned here, God's wrath, and it should serve as a warning to everyone who goes astray. In verse 7, heed the warning. Don't rebel against God. Don't be in unbelief against God. And don't practice the sins. Heed the warning. He talks now about an evil life. The false teachers had infiltrated the church. They were visionaries, but they were visionaries of evil dreams. It's one thing to have a vision, but what vision is it? Hugh Hefner had a vision, but it was the wrong one. Playboy Mansion and, and pornography all around the world. Bill Gates had a vision. Walton had a vision. Some visions are good, some are not. But the people that are the false teachers, they came to church with evil dreams, evil visions. They defiled their flesh, and they even spoke evil against angels in verse 8. Not even Michael the archangel, the Bible said, would say anything bad to an evil angel. Remember, Michael was called to take the body of Moses and bury it, but he was, he was, he was interrupted. 
Satan wanted to take the body from him and bury it himself, but even Michael the archangel would not have anything unkind to say to the, fall, to the bad angel. He simply said, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you in verse 9. Now angels are created beings. And as such, I think they should be respected as well. But these evil men condemned everything they did not understand and spiritual things that were beyond their understanding. They didn't, they didn't understand their fleshly instincts and allow themselves to be governed by them. They were like brute beasts, the Bible said in verse 10. Can you imagine brute beasts? Paul talked about this somewhat in Romans. He said in Romans chapter 1, I think it was, that man was created with the knowledge of God in his heart, in his mind. There's a natural revelation. You've heard me say it many times. There's a creation. We know there's a creator. There's a design of the creation. Therefore, there is a designer. We know there's a God in our, in our mind. We know somebody did this. To believe that there is no creation of a God who created, we might as well believe this Bible came to existence as a result of an explosion in the book factory somewhere. That makes no sense to me. It takes more faith to believe this came about because of an explosion somewhere in a book factory than to say, there was an author, there's somebody who put that together. There's a printing press. We know there's a God. The question is, who is this God? And the Word reveals to us who God really is. It is a special revelation. He tells us in his word, I'm Christ, the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is God. And therefore he's led in his precepts as to how we're to live our life. But because man refused to know God and refused to worship God as God, he had to create something in his own thinking that he could worship. Why? Man was made to worship. So if we're not going to worship God, we're going to worship the creation. And therefore, man worships the creation without worshiping the Creator. And therefore, if we're worshiping the creation, we have no God to give an account to. So therefore, in our ungodly thinking, our ungodly mind, we have no God to give an account to. We can do whatever we want. And that's the brute beast he refers to. And therefore, he talked about the sins of homosexuality, uh, women laying with women, men laying with, women, uh, with men. And there, it goes on and on and on. And he sank lower than the animals themselves. And because man would not retain the knowledge of God in his mind, God gave them over to a reprobate mind and said, go do what you want to do because God's presence would not stop him because they would not cooperate with God. And you'd think that man would be happy in his sin, but no, he's not happy till he drags everybody else down into it. And that's the danger that we see today with so much going on in our world. It's not enough just to pass this law that, that certain groups can have their right, but now we want to drain it in and make everybody else do the same thing. And that's the danger. Paul talked about these things that was creeping in to the church of that particular day. These evil men, they didn't understand their fleshly instincts. They allowed themselves to be governed like brute beasts. Ah. The false teachers were like Cain, cynical and selfish murder. They were like Balaam, uh, the, whose one desire was to gain and who led people to sin. And they were like Korah, who rebelled against the legitimate authority of Moses, and they were swallowed up in the earth because of his arrogant disobedience in verse 11. You see, it's important not just have knowledge of God. It's important to have a walk with this God. You know, let me say it again. God does not give us his plan to imprison us. God gives us his commandments his decrees, to set us free. People that are doing their own thing, they're not free. 
They're bound by sin. They're bound by slavery. They're bound by something. But who the Son sets free is free indeed. And he puts strict obedience on my life and yours, not to imprison us, but to make sure we still enjoy the freedoms that we have. I hope that makes sense. Jew was writing the false teachers that were in the church. Now they look good outwardly, but the Bible says that they're evil men seducing the church. Jude said they're like hidden rocks in the water. When a ship comes by, they crash into it and it is destroyed. He went on to say that their false teachers have their own cliques in which they consort with people just like themselves uh, that have false doctrine. They're somewhat charismatic personality and they have no, no mind but to destroy Christian fellowship. They make deceptive promises and people swallow their garbage hook, line, and sinker. They're like clouds that promise rain and they fly, float through the sky and not one drop of water is squeezed out of them. And they're like fruitless and rootless trees that have no, uh, no, no, no harvest of a good crop whatsoever. And here's the thing. Many of these false teachers are handsome. They're beautiful women. They're full of charisma. They're personable. They're well-liked. And in many circles, well-respected. But oh, how dangerous they can be. Years ago, we were at a sectional meeting in our, up in the mountains, we, in the Simmons of God, you have the district, then you have sections, and, you, and so forth. So we had our section uh, meeting. And they had brought in this woman to speak, and not because she's a woman, just happened to be a woman. And she gave her testimony, which was powerful. So my pastor said, I want to have her church. So we invited her down. That was on a Monday night. She, he invited her down for a Sunday night service, and she came in and got behind the pulpit and said, I'm supposed to be here to share my testimony, but I'm going to share this. Well, first of all, she came to do the testimony and didn't get the clearance to do something else. And she got up and she began to rattle false doctrine off the wall. And my pastor looked at me and I looked at him and he said, what am I supposed to do? I said, I'd, shut, I'd set her down. And he said, how much more can I let this go? I said, I don't think you can. And had to stand up and set her down. You see, well, that's rude. Let me tell you something. If you were out at a restaurant eating and I saw somebody giving you poison and I didn't say anything because I'm afraid I'm going to interrupt your eating, you're going to get mad at me. There comes times we've got to call a spade a spade. And we've got to be able to correct people without destroying them. But some of these evil teachers, they've got a made up mind that they know what they're doing or they may not know what they're doing, but we still got to call their hand and say, look, we've got to come back to this book. We've got to come back to this book. Jude also said the teachers were like foaming spray of the waves, casting the seaweed on the beaches, but yet they foam out shameless deeds along the way. They're like disobedient stars that refuse to shine and fall right out of orbit, he said. Long ago, Enoch described these men and had prophesied their, their destruction in verse 15. They murmur against authority, they murmur against discipline, and they murmur just like the nation of Israel did against Moses. They're discontented with the lot that God has pointed them to, and their lusts bring them into bondage. Words to the faithful. Having exposed the false teachers of corruption of the church, Jude now turns to the church itself and gives some faithful, great words to the people. He said, first of all, 
The false teachers in the church should have not come to a surprise to him. He said, after all, the apostles had foretold them the day was coming. He said, but beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before uh, the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they were told yet you, how they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lust. First of all, we should not be shocked nor surprised if and when false teachers try to come into the church. Okay? He's warned us. The duty of every devoted child of God as you and I, we are to dedicate ourselves to be a true disciple of the Lord, knowing His Word, living His Word, defending His Word, and standing on that Word as well. We learn to rightly interpret the Word of God. Let me tell you again, the Word of God cannot mean today what it did not mean when it was written. When somebody comes to you and says, I've got a new revelation, I'd walk away from them like the plague. There are no new revelations. I hate to tell you that. There are no new revelations. There is illumination on the word we already have. Does that make sense? Amen. There are no new revelations. It's complete. But people today with itchy ears want to hear something. They want to be the first to share something new. To really, oh boy, I got a hold of it. There's nothing new. It's here. We can see some depth on it and more clarity with it. It's like the flashlight. You ever had a flashlight kind of burned out? And you turn a brighter light on you can see a little deeper in it. But the revelation is complete from the word of God. With that being said, we remember the covenant we made with the Lord Jesus Christ and we don't break that covenant. We patiently wait for the mercy of our God. Now, with the false thinkers and the loose livers, <laughs> okay, the loose livers, some of them show a little bit of pity. It may be that they were true people of God. And this is what really happens. There's a lot of Christians that are truly born again. They love the Lord, but they get exposed to the wrong kind of people to the wrong kind of teaching, and it leads them down the wrong pathway, and next thing you know, they're trapped by the evil teaching that's there. I've seen it happen way too many times. I've seen it. I've said it before. If you go to a church or you belong to a fellowship where there's all love and false doctrine, that's a cult. But if you go to a place where the doctrine is right and there's no love, that's shameful. It really is. That's shameful. There ought to be love among the people of God. And there ought to be love among the people for His Word as well. Well, once again, every Christian must have a godly fear for the sinner and love the sinner, but hate the sin. I don't find anywhere that I can find the book of Jude that Jude rebuffed them, rebuked them, condemned them. He simply said, beware of them. Understand that. He didn't fuss at them. He didn't petition them. He didn't get on news and say, look at this bunch of idiots. No, he simply said, Beware of them. And then do the best we can to love them without embracing the doctrine of the head. Now, who were these heretics? Who were these heretics? As ironic as it sounds, Jude never mentioned to us who they were. Jude was not a theologian. Jude was simply a man of the church who loved the Lord, who had a burden to say, hey, the false prophets, the false teachers are here. We better beware of them. One commentator said, Jude denounces rather than describes the heresies he attacks. He doesn't speak to argue nor refute. Rather, he simply offers a strong warning to his readers. And from this brief letter, we learn a few things about the heretics that he mentioned. Notice, if you will, uh, in the book of 2 John, uh, verses 10 and 11, John wrote about this as well. 
If they're coming to you and bring, if they're coming to you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's speed. For he that biddeth him God's speed is partaker of his evil deeds. Think about that. When we have cults come and knock on our doors, years ago my heart broke for me, still does. But when they come knock on our door, I take their literature. And I take it and I throw it away because if I get it, nobody else does. But if we sit there and love on them, now hear me out, God bless you, we are partaking in what they're doing. I don't want to be rude to them, but I don't want to bless them in what they're doing either. You understand? That's what he says here. And I think some of these people, if you get them off of their, their, their play-by-play textbook, they get lost. I have talked to many cults, cultish people, and they want to argue, 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 argue. And the best thing to do, if you can't in the first few minutes, if they don't have the repentance, I just walk away and say, look, you you believe, I believe what I believe. And that's it. It sounds so close. You cannot change somebody if they don't want to change. And he he whose opinion is changed against his will remains of the same opinion still. Okay? Well, who were some of these people? The Antoniums, say that real twice, twice. They reject laws or legalism and argue against moral, religious, and social norms. That's what they basically do. They're a group of people who perverted the grace of God. That's simply that. They perverted the grace of God. And they've existed in about every period of the church. The prescription of the law may apply to other people, but it don't apply to me. That's basically it. The law may apply to you, but the law of God does not apply to me. They can do anything they want because grace is supreme. And the more I sin, the more God's grace abounds. Paul had to rebuke the Galatians for that little thought, did he not? And yet that's what these people believe. And not only that, uh, the, the body is of no importance. What matters is the heart of man. That's why many of them can say, uh, Brother Charlie, uh, your body don't sin, uh, your body's what sins, it's not the spirit on the inside. So that's, that's good. You can just go do what you want to because your spirit, boy, that's coming right from God and you're okay. Well, that means I'm a bigger sinner than you are because I weigh more than you do. It's ludicrous, but that's the belief systems that they had uh, during that time that, that, that Jude uh, was dealing with. Once again, for them, nothing was forbidden. So the heretics you'd addresses turned the grace of God into an excuse of immorality. Verse 4. They practiced shameful, evil, unnatural, wicked vices, as did the people of Sodom in chapter 7. They defiled the flesh, and yet they think that it's not sin at all. They allow their brute instincts to rule their lives in verse 10. With their sensual ways, they're like shipwreck, uh, their faith at the love feasts in verse 12. And by their own lust that they direct their lives in verse 16. There are many modern day examples of this heresy. Many. I know people that go to churches that condone blatant sins, but because they think that sin is accepted to God, They continue on in that blatant sin. But they sing, they worship, they pray, they worship the Lord Jesus, and they go right ahead and live their life. What do you do in those situations? God will give them over to a reprobate mind. 
It's dangerous because our heart breaks for them. Our heart breaks. Then there were also the heretics of that day known as the pantheists. The pantheists kind of revived during the 17th century. They were known as the ranters. A pantheist believed that God is everything. It's a doctrine that identifies God with the universe, regards the universe as a manifestation of God. Did you get that? A manifestation of God. They, their, their, their worship tolerates all gods since God's in everything. God's in the floor. God's in the pen. God's in the pulpit. God's in the amen corner. God's everywhere. So pantheism, God's everywhere and everything is God. Jude condemns such teaching as heresy and teachings are shameful and they are damnable. Now, there are those who denied Jesus and denied Christ. Jude said, denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. The closing doxology is the only God. The only God. He mentions the only God. Why? Why, did he, why was he forced to put in the only God? Or what not forced, but what did he put in the only God? It occurs in Romans 16 and 1 Timothy 1 and 1 Timothy 6. The reiteration of the word only is significant. If Jude talks about our only master and Lord and about the only God, it's natural to assume that there was questions about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ himself. They were messing with the atonement. They were messing with the divinity and the deity of Jesus Christ. He says, beware of that. You can trace such line of thoughts to the church uh, throughout the centuries, even to where we are today. For instance, Christian science. Christian science, Jesus was the offspring of Mary, self-consciousness of God, but he was not God. The Unity Church, Jesus is the I in man, the self, the divine idea. So if he's in me, I am Christ. That's what they teach. Jehovah Witnesses, Jesus was mere man, no more, no less. God created him. He's dead. He did not rise bodily from the grave. Sure want to follow that, don't you? Bahaism. Jesus is one of many manifestations of God. Unitarianism. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Our birth was just as divine as his was. And then you have like Seventh-day Adventist. In his humanity, Jesus sinned just like you and me. Friends, when you and I get to messing with the deity, the sinlessness, and the atonement of Jesus Christ, we're on some very thin ice when it comes to the things of God. There were those who denied the Lord. As often seen in the New Testament, we're again in contact with this type of thinking, which was known as Gnosticism. Boy, I could say a lot about Gnosticism, and I've got a lot to say in just about three, four minutes to say it. Gnosticism basically says that there was a dualistic universe made up of two eternal principles. From the beginning of time, there's always been spirit, there's always been matter, M-A-T-T-E-R. Spirit was essentially good, matter is evil. Are you hitting me? Spirit is good, evil is matter. Out of matter flowed the creation of the world, therefore it's evil. Now God's pure in spirit, therefore it's impossible for him to handle the evil matter. How then creation is affected? Simply stated, Gnosticism taught there's a lesser God that created the universe. It's more complicated than this. Gnosticism has a way of teaching that there were basically a lesser God, two gods. The lesser God created, or it was the Old Testament God, where matter came from. 
The New Testament, God came from, and that's where spirit came from. As they saw it, the God of creation was different from the God of the revelation and redemption. Christianity, on the other hand, believes it's only the God, our God, Old Testament, New Testament, God of redemption, God of salvation, God of mercy, God of grace, not two gods. They thought matter came from the lesser God of the Old Testament, and Jesus comes based from the God of the New Testament. They were so confused in their mind that the heroes of the Old Testament became villains, and the villains of the Old Testament literally became the heroes of the day. That was the logic behind their thinking. Some even worshiped the serpent in Eden. Do we have people that do that today, by the way? Yes, we do. They worshiped, if you will, Korah. They regarded Korah and Cain and Balaam as great heroes, and they put them on pedestals today. And the very people that Jews uses as tragic examples and the consequences of sin. Not only do these people deny God, they deny Jesus Christ. And if we deny Jesus Christ, what do we have to stand upon? What do we have to build upon? We're going to get into that later. The Gnostics also divided man into two classes of people. And the most dangerous heresies that threatened the early church in the first three centuries, they were influenced by people like Plato. Gnosticism is based on two false premises. First of all, it espouses a dualism regarding the spirit and matter. Gnostics assert that matter is inherently evil, while spirit is good. As a result of this, Gnostics believe anything done in the body, even the grossest of sins, has no meaning because it does not affect the spirit realm at all. So therefore, do anything you want to do in this body, your spirit's not touched. It's unscathed. Do what you want. Do as much as you want to do it. For the more you sin, the greater God's grace abounds. After all, the spirit on the inside is fine. It's intact. It's that body that's doing the wrong. And friends, if you get in that kind of a teaching, you say, how can you believe such stupidity? The world's full of people doing it. Churches are believing it anymore. And secondly, Gnostics claim to possess an elevated knowledge, a higher knowledge, a higher truth, known only to a certain few. It comes from the Greek. Gnosticism comes from the Greek, which means to know. They have a higher knowledge. Did not come from the Bible. Their higher knowledge did not come from the Bible. It's acquired by some other mystical means of existence. Gnostics see themselves as a privileged class, elevated above everybody else. They have a higher, deeper intellect. Sound like some of the people I used to do on the news at night. Forgive me. Did you hear on the news the other day that Harvard, a university that was raised up to train ministers and clergy, now has an atheist as their chaplain? Why? 40% of the graduates of Harvard are either atheist or agnostic. You think any Gnosticism's ever creeped into those teachings? Can you imagine a school that was formed like Yale and Harvard and some of these other Ivy League schools to train ministers and clergy the things of God and how far down the porcelain potty it's gone today all because of not listening to the Word of God. People in their education, people in their flight for understanding, they're more indoctrinated, they're deeper in humanistic thinking than what this Bible can share. And therefore, we kick out the God, we kick out the Bible, and we embrace the Gnosticism, the modern-day Gnosticism of our era. 
Do you think for a moment that these people, 40% just in one school, if they were to get in our churches and start teaching, what would happen? And they're there. When I was in the sixth, seventh grade, a little church I attended, I had an agnostic that taught my Sunday school class. A blatant agnostic who taught my Sunday school class. Here's a group of teenager mushmelon heads ready to be indoctrinated, ready to have the gospel taught to us, but no, 180 degrees opposite. My mother was not even a Christian. She went to church one Sunday and they handed her a Sunday school book and said, would you teach Sunday school? And my mama had enough sense to say, I'm not saved. It don't matter. Teach. Friend, it matters. It matters. May God help us have a holiness, a, ho a hunger for the holiness of God's Word. Would you